0: In the meantime, just head over to Patreon.com slash The Writer It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's Patreon.com slash The Writer Help us start something special.
1: One of the big uh, downsides of writing is it's such a solitary profession. And so I think that anything that brings you out into the world and, and puts you in a in a group of people, especially a bar, is a, it, it's just a gregarious setting, and alcohol tends to loosen people up. So it's uh, it's a good antidote to uh, to the writer's dilemma. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not enough to be good; you have to be a little lucky too. I remember hearing an interview with uh, Paul McCartney, and somebody asked him once if, when he was composing songs with lennon whether he could tell which ones were going to be hits and which ones couldn't and he said that not only could he not tell which songs were the hits whenever he tried to guess he was always wrong and i had a little bit of that experience with defending jacob too it didn't seem to me like there was anything (laughs) obviously better or worse about it but it just took off
0: And welcome back to The Writer Files. I am your humble host, Kelton Reed, wishing you pages, patience, and perseverance per usual. Award-winning and New York Times best-selling novelist William Landay spoke with me about how former lawyers get pigeonholed in publishing, why we can't get enough true crime, and his latest, All That Is Mine I Carry With Me. William is a former assistant district attorney and the best-selling author of Defending Jacob, recently adapted into the Emmy-nominated Apple TV Plus series starring Chris Evans. His eagerly anticipated follow-up is All That Is Mine I Carry With Me, available for pre-sale now and on sale March 7th from Bantam. A March 2023 Library Reads pick described by New York Times bestselling author Scott Turow as masterful, original, and riveting with its subtle mystery and compelling portraits of how lives are transformed in the aftermath of violent crime. New York Times bestselling author Joseph Finder said of the author, With All That Is Mine I Carry With Me, The masterful author of Defending Jacob has created something unforgettable and original, unlike any other crime novel I've read. In this file, William and I discussed the double-edged sword of a two-book deal, why service industry jobs are great for writers, the strange surprise of writing a runaway bestseller, the long tale of Defending Jacob and the power of book clubs, why we will always need books, and a lot more. Stay calm and write on don't forget, you can always support this show by heading to writerfiles.fm, where you can also sign up for email updates, get links to merch, and other resources for writers. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click follow to automatically see new interviews in your podcatcher as soon as they're published, and drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune in to help other writers find us. All right. We are back on the Writer Files. I am very honored today to be joined by a special guest today. We have an award-winning and New York Times bestselling author, William Landay. I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly because I actually forgot to ask you how to say it.
1: You did you did, right? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Fantastic. So uh, yes, I can't wait to talk to you about all things writing and the writing life. Of course, your latest all That Is Mine, I Carry With Me. And uh, yeah, this uh, really, really fantastic career of yours. But let's talk about, um, take us back a little bit because obviously um, you've had some acclaim as an author and definitely uh, kind of seen some different sides of you know American culture as a former lawyer. Um, but talk, talk a little bit about kind of how you became a writer and um, just kind of the cliff's notes on, how you got to uh, this place in your career.
1: Uh, It's an interesting story. There's no, I was, I'm not one of those writers who grew up knowing that I would be a writer or feeling compelled to pursue this. Uh, There were no writers or artists of any kind in my life uh, growing up. And so it didn't seem like a realistic uh, profession to aspire to. Um, I always wrote a lot, and I had a facility with writing. Um, I've always kept journals, and and that's always been an important way to express myself and to to think. I think of uh, writing to me as as an extension of of thought. It's a, it forces you to think clearly, and so I've never uh, I've never lived without writing. Uh, but as a profession it it just didn't seem uh, like something that one could aspire to Um, so i wound up going to law school and writing on the side uh, just as a hobby nights and weekends i would crank out uh, short stories and things like that Uh, in law school uh, i remember i was reading lonesome dove uh, by larry mcmurtry and a buddy of mine from law school, who was another bookish sort of guy. Uh, And I kind of fell into a long discussion about the relative merits of writing versus lawyering. And the thought was that a lawyer really leaves nothing behind. You might uh, have a a shining day in court where everything goes gloriously well, but then when you leave, uh, there's nothing permanent uh, or, or beautiful or enduring that's uh that's left behind versus uh a novelist like larry mcmurtry whose whose books i always found kind of uneven uh like most writers uh, including me uh but even a writer who fails most times has the chance of creating a book like lonesome dove a transcendent enduring book and so as i came out of law school I had this idea in mind that there was something else out there that might be uh, richer and deeper and more uh, enduring. So, as a young lawyer, I started writing, and as time went on, you kind of—I joined the uh, DA's office uh, near Boston, where I live. And as you climb the ladder uh, at the DA's office, your cases become more serious and you start doing victim cases and it just gets so involving, so uh, overwhelming that you can't uh, write on the side anymore. And so as I uh, came to my 30th birthday, I kind of thought, well, let's just try writing one time. And it, it wasn't a career choice. It wasn't uh, I didn't quit and devote my life uh, to doing this forever. I just wanted to see if i could write one book uh and the goal was just to at first the goal was just to see if i could get to the end of a manuscript and complete a novel length story and then the goal <laughs> the the goalposts continually move back as your expectations rise and uh and then the the goal became to publish and so i wrote a series of uh bad novels, bad manuscripts that never got, uh, never saw the light of day. I never even uh, tried to get them published. And eventually I uh, left the DA's office to, to write full time. And again, it wasn't to leave the profession of lawyering. It was just to sort of see this through and, and give it a real try. And, uh, and that's when Mission Flats uh, was written, which was my first published novel and was written while I was uh, bartending at night and kind of uh, writing during the day. Although if you tried bartending at night, uh, you will quickly realize that it takes a toll on your, uh, on your daytime abilities. <laughs> so, and I also, I had gotten married at the time, which, which wasn't a make or break in any way. Uh, the true make or break was my wife got pregnant. And at that point it was, uh, I, I simply couldn't write, uh, anymore without uh, bringing in an income. <laughs> so uh, we were actually we were at the obstetrician's office to uh, uh, check up on the, on my wife's pregnancy when my agent called and said that, uh, that we had a deal for the first book. Uh, this was after 10 years or so of writing uh, in, with various degrees of seriousness. And, uh, and I wound up with a two-book deal, which Amazing. is good news and bad news. You know, the, the good news is you get paid. The bad news is you got to write a second book. So a one book project turned into a career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, see, that's
0: a, that's a cool origin story because, you know, as you have kind of jokingly written the, um, about the author as a, uh, as a part of your, your, uh, what home base there at, uh, dot It's funny. Cause I clicked through and I read it and I was like, oh yeah, I mean, this makes a lot of sense. It's kind of like an essay about, about the author. <laughs>
1: I've always felt that. I've always the, the gist of, of the essay you're referring to is that that it interferes with the reader's experience to know too much about the author. You, you should be able to uh, disappear into the story and forget that there is a person writing it who exists outside of the novel. And especially these uh, these authors' notes that come in at the end of, of so many novels now, I I just feel that it intrudes on the reader's experience to to rush on stage uh, right as the play is ending, right as the reader turns the last page, and and the <laughs> dramatic climax of the novel should be ringing in their ears. And at that moment, the novelist decides to thank his agent and his editor and his wife and his whatever. It, <laughs> uh, I feel like at that point, the writer is better off just keeping his mouth shut.
0: So you think that the acknowledgments. Uh actually take away from the, the impact of the of the story
1: absolutely and i i don't think uh i don't think it's a mistake that uh dickens or hemingway or jane austen would have made uh it's 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 a, a trend it's a fashion uh, and i <laughs> i hope it goes away very soon
0: Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories, wherever you buy books, and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreoncom slash files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writers' happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join. To get a preview and you can upgrade anytime that's patreon.com slash the writer files help us start something cool and special keep calm and write on it was heartening to hear you say that you had spent some time moonlighting as a bartender and of course who among us hasn't uh done that
1: <laughs> but um <laughs> I think that's a great job for a writer, don't you? It's a great. I think it's a great job for anyone. Honestly, I uh, it's a great people job, and it uh, it brings you out into the world. One of the big uh, downsides of writing is it's such a solitary profession, and so I think that anything that brings you out into the world and and puts you in a in a group of people, especially a bar, is. I, it, it's just a gregarious setting and alcohol tends to loosen people up. So it's, uh, it's a good antidote to, uh, that's right. To the writer's dilemma.
0: I agree. And I think, um, as you put it, the, uh, the libations, um, keep people telling stories, <laughs> telling one another stories. And often, you know, I mean, there's quite a bit of, uh, bullshitting. There's a lot of bullshitting. Thank you. And, um, <laughs> And that's, that in and of itself is pretty funny, but there's also some like, always like some questionable characters at you know, if you're at a place that is open late enough to kind of like, you you can kind of sense the turn of the energy of the bar when, when you realize that like, oh, this is that time of night when like some questionable people are
1: kind of floating in and out. So true. (laughs) Yeah. And people are transformed by drinking too, in ways that would be unrecognizable to their daytime (laughs) friends. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly
0: well very cool um a cool part of your about that, that, that we don't often see or hear about but thanks for sharing that <laughs> but yeah um let's talk about the latest and of course you've had this um this string of uh fantastic novels this is your fourth novel and uh, as you said mission flats was an award winner and uh won a best first crime novel award from the dagger awards and then uh Strangler, of course, named a Best Crime Novel of the Year by the LA Times and more. But um, yeah, talk a little bit about, I don't the, the like kind of the difference in the reception of Defending Jacob, of course, which ha- had just won a slew of awards and, and been nominated for some prizes and also uh, was recently turned into an Emmy-nominated uh, Apple TV Plus show, right?
1: Yes. Talk a little yeah. bit,
0: Talk a little bit about kind of, did, did you feel a difference in kind of the reception of that one as opposed to the first two?
1: <laughs> well, in the reception, certainly. <laughs> um, but I didn't feel any difference in the writing. And this is the thing that I hope people understand. Uh, you know, I had two books that were well-received by critics, but didn't sell all that well. And then I had a third book that sold like crazy. and. In the writing, I didn't sense any quantum leap in quality, or and I still don't think there is. I, I think it's just chancy and strange how some books will find traction and others won't. And, you know, it's not enough to be good. You have to be a little lucky, too. I remember hearing an interview with uh, Paul McCartney, and somebody asked him once if when he was composing songs with Lennon, whether he could tell which ones were going to be hits and which ones couldn't. And he said that not only could he not tell which songs were the hits, whenever he tried to guess he was always wrong. And I had a little bit of that experience with defending Jacob too. It didn't seem to me like there was anything <laughs> obviously better or worse about it, but it just took off. It had a very long tail too. It you know it hit the bestseller list, and that's one kind of rush which i had never experienced before but then it kind of got picked up by the book clubs too and so it had a very long life your sales kind of uh settled but they plateaued and and didn't didn't vanish um and it just kept selling and selling and book clubs kept picking it up and picking it up and i think that that is in a way more gratifying because You know you have the initial sort of rush when people are kind of reading it because it's fashionable but when at that point later after that it becomes purely word of mouth and and you get people who are who are really committed to reading who who take it up and that's that's just a very gratifying part of the of the sales curve i guess you'd say
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I think, you know, we've, we've spoken with uh, quite a few bestselling authors who have said the same thing that that boost from those book clubs and, you know, being able to, to continue the shelf life of, of a work is pretty, you know, again, it's like kind of a, just a blessing, I guess, for authors to, to be able to see it continually be, get picked up and, and, and talked about, which is really, really cool. A really cool oh, story.
1: It's, it's super cool. The other nice thing about it is, you know, it's such a personal, intimate way to, to meet a person. When you read an author's book, you are connecting in this direct, intimate way to another human being's thoughts in a way that's very difficult face-to-face. Uh, and so people will, readers will feel a connection to an author even though they've never met this person, and so I would get these emails from people who, who felt like friends, and it just went went on and on, and and I it extends the writers community uh, in a way that is very interesting. You know, you have your intimate friends and family, and you have your acquaintances beyond that, and I feel like I got this gift of a, a third ring of of connections. people who had read the book and and felt that they knew me and a community formed around it and it's just a it's a very cool experience especially because novel writing and novel reading are both such isolated activities that uh that these books that are created and consumed in perfect privacy then result in this web of relationships is just a a super cool feeling
0: and probably far different from the um, you know, once a year or once a book publicity tour Mm -hmm. where now, I mean, even though during the pandemic, so many authors were stuck at home on zoom Mm -hmm. readings, which had to have been kind of, uh, anticlimactic, but, (laughs) um, yeah, but being at, but I've heard this before, you know, being, being able to get out and meet readers and to feel the energy of being able to, you know, do a reading in a room full of, full of, uh, you know, folks that are connecting with your work is probably a pretty special thing. But also, as you said, that, that other ring of that other kind of, uh, tertiary community of, of, uh, readers has gotta be pretty special. Yes, it, it, it
1: really is. It really is. I hope to get, I hope that there's more in-person readings for this book coming up now that we're sort of moving out of COVID, even though COVID has become endemic and hasn't gone away. I'm glad that the world, particularly the book world, is moving back out into uh, the physical world uh, because it's, it's important for, for readers to meet. It's, such a, it's a small percentage of the population that really reads and that really loves books. And so for people to get together at a reading uh, and, and be part of that living community of, of book people is, is important.
0: So I can't wait to talk about All That Is Mine, I Carry With Me, um, which will be available on the 7th of March. And uh, yeah, so the the latest uh, is a novel. Do you like to call it a legal drama? Are we calling this a... (laughs) How are you describing it?
1: I I don't know. I don't run away from labels like that, but I don't feel that I, I sort of fall between the stools. I don't know that any of these labels (laughs) <laughs> really apply to my books all that well, I think of them not as crime novels and not as legal novels. I think of them as mostly family stories uh, that happen to involve uh, crime and, and lawyers. I think because I come from a background of, of having been a prosecutor, that people tend to slot my books into those columns. Uh, and I think you could look at Defending Jacob and Call it a legal novel if if you want to uh but it's not uh it's not the way i think of them
0: so do you feel like you get kind of um miscast in a sense
1: i think that i'm wary of labels like crime novel especially mystery suspense legal thriller um only because i worry that those sort of labels turn off a, a, a more general reader who who wouldn't be interested in in what he imagines to be uh, a crime novel or a or, or a thriller. I think that a lot of the book clubs that we talked about, that sort of mainstream readership, that audience really doesn't go down the, the mystery aisle of the bookstore, the suspense aisle. And and I don't want people to feel like this, that, that my books aren't welcoming to them because I feel that they are. And in fact, I think what's interesting about these books is they ordinarily people consume crime novels as a kind of fantasy and, and crime movies and television shows and so on. These are people who, for whom crime is not an everyday reality, essentially. And this is not news. I mean, people, uh, ordinary suburban m- moms and dads, Uh, have been reading crime novels for a very long time people who go to the grocery store and mow the lawn will happily read about uh, bank robbers and murderers and thugs and it's a sort of fantasy and one thing that my novels have tried to do and in increasingly uh, direct and explicit ways is bridge that gap and present crime in a way that brings it directly into the lives of non-criminals essentially (laughs) a general audience and and there's nothing especially uh uh, brave or innovative about that Uh, many great writers have written stories that involve crimes Uh, but i feel like that's that realism that presence of crime in lives that seem secure and unruffled and, uh, un- not exposed to, to crime is shocking to people in a, if it can be made to feel real and present in their lives. And so the last couple of books, including the upcoming book involves, uh, ordinary suburban families who, whose lives crime comes crashing in. And the question is how, how would you respond? How would you react? To me, uh, one other reason I've I've always resisted uh, that that label of crime novels is I, I don't find crime itself uh, especially interesting. Uh, and if you spend even a moment in ordinary criminal courts, uh, you'll see that most most criminal cases are, are repetitive and similar and and dull. I'm interested in crime only as a prism through which we can talk about all kinds of universal fundamental experiences and feelings and anxieties. One of my favorite quotes is from a psychiatrist named Robert Simon, who says that uh, bad men do what good men dream. And I think that that really captures the appeal of novels about crimes. You can talk about these fundamental, universal issues and experiences in ways that uh, that embody them and dramatize them, in ways that that ordinary ordinary life and and just speaking about these things in in the abstract don't don't quite move you the same way so that to me is the appeal of it and and i the new novel is told in such a way uh as to uh steer into that realism and presence and uh and, and authenticity of crime intruding on the life of an ordinary family um so that's that's been my interest with the last couple of books what what can crime tell us about ourselves not what can crime tell us about bad guy criminals in some sort of fantasy world or in a in a a show about crime happening always somewhere else always to uh a different sort of, of people
0: Interesting. Yeah. That's a pretty fascinating way of looking at it. Crime as a prism through which we can talk about universal anxieties. And, um, obviously, uh, we have, uh, quite a few modern anxieties to, <laughs> to <laughs> grapple with, uh, in this kind of ongoing, in these ongoing concentric circles of crises that we so often are faced with. So, yeah, I mean, it does seem like crime is having quite a, uh, a renaissance for sure um true crime and and so on and so forth and um obviously the 24 hours news cycle tends to Mm -hmm. tends to kind of glom onto that quite a bit i'm I'm thinking of the murdoch uh case in uh Mm -hmm. i think it's i think it's uh south carolina which is kind of like always like what is what what the hell is wrong with this family you know like what happened how did all these people die and all this money go missing
1: and right and, and it is true that the, the sort of the media environment we live in, where we have such saturation coverage of all of these uh, stories, even stories that at one point would have been considered a local story, and, and you may not have heard about at all, creates an atmosphere of danger and insecurity and <laughs> worry, uh, always anxiety about, about violence and, and crime. Uh, because it's all you hear about, and and it it simply isn't in proportion to the actual level of crime and the actual statistical likelihood of crime coming into most people's lives, and yet the coverage creates this fear, and that fear takes up permanent residence in our emotional life, and and we should address it. We should address it, and and crime stories are a wonderful way to do that. And in some ways, when we consume crime stories, whether on TV or in novels or whatever, uh, we are working off some of that anxiety. We're letting we're letting off steam. It's a release valve. Hmm.
0: You know, interesting. Well, I could pick your brain about that uh, all day, but I do want to get back to, of course, your latest. Uh, all That Is Mine, I Carry With Me, um, which kind of has a, a meta piece to it. We won't do any spoilers, but um, you are kind of, uh, you know, the, the novel opens talking about writer's block. And of course, uh, one of the protagonists is a, is a writer mm-hmm. researching. A, a, so you're essentially researching a novel about researching a novel in, in in kind of a meta sense, uh, when you're writing this novel, um, talk about the process uh, and the and the kind of the the origins. Yeah, kind of the seed of inspiration for uh, the latest.
1: Yeah, well, as I, as I say, it the interest of crime for me has been lately about what it uh, says about our own lives, and so I wanted to address this directly. uh, And there's one way to do that is to break the fourth wall, to turn and address the reader directly. Uh, And and that, in a way, is what's happening in that opening section of the book. Uh, A narrator, uh, the narrator in the uh, opening section of the book is a novelist uh, who bears a certain resemblance to myself uh, and has gone a long time, Uh, after having a popular book. Uh, And that too tracks with uh, my own experience. Defending Jacob came out in 2012. And it's been a struggle for me to follow it up with this next book. Um, Not because I felt any particular pressure about uh, following that book. It's just that each creative project brings its own struggles. And and the struggle is is simply part of the process, and and it's bad luck uh, that it that it followed such a popular book. So I wanted to use that. I wanted to take advantage of the fact that when people open this book, more often than not, they'll be thinking, "Oh, this is the guy who wrote Defending Jacob. Whatever happened? Why why such a long layoff?" and I wanted to use that energy uh, to the advantage of this novel. I wanted to uh, take advantage of the assumptions and the questions that the reader would bring uh, when he opens this book and starts reading on page one. And so the beginning of the book almost takes it as a, as a given uh, that you will project that narrator uh, as me. Uh, and use that to enhance the sense of realism that the book brings. And in some ways, the book occupies that uncanny valley between realism and reality when the authenticity of a book begins to seem like real life. And that is very much intentional, and it is meant to feel real, and the goal is to give the reader that little chill that you feel uh, when a story hits very close to home. And that, that is, was a very conscious, purposeful uh, intention of that opening section of the book.
0: Hmm. Well, uh, congratulations on the reception of the latest, of course, uh, described as a, a story that spans decades, a mother vanishes, the father's presumed guilty, and there's no proof and no witness. Uh, when the mother's remains are found years later, the investigation reawakens, and the now-grown kids must ask themselves, can you really trust the people closest to you? Some really great blurbs here from some very uh, fine peers, of course. Um, Louise Penny called it astonishing, powerful, provocative, and worth the excruciating wait for another William Landay. was not sure to say. <laughs> She's saying what we all thought. <laughs> Um, but, uh, no, it was really cool to see, uh, Scott Tarot and, uh, Joseph Fender, uh, blurb the book. Fender has been on this show as well. Super, super cool.
1: He's a great guy.
0: Yeah. But some really sweet, sweet peers. Um, of course. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess in a nutshell, like when, when you are kind of hitting your stride when you're when you're actually getting pages and you feel like you're hitting flow a flow state
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, in your writing process. what kind of a writer are you? What, what do you feel like is kind of your your best writing day when you're kind of in it?
1: Hmm. it's I'm very sporadic uh, I, I wouldn't even claim to know or to understand it because I feel like those best days when it's really coming, uh, I sort of disappear, and it's always a little trance-like and unconscious. And when you emerge from one of those writing uh, jags, it's always a little astonishing to look back at this passage that you've created or this scene. Uh, sometimes I'll read the prose, and it I'll know that I'm not actually that good a writer somehow it came out of me I it's it it has a miraculous inexplicable feeling to it 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 is a a magical feeling uh and I that is that is really the the most gratifying part of this job is when you create something that you know is is beyond your actual abilities I think every writer's goal or every writer of any ambition uh, his goal is always to to work at the extreme outer limit of your talent and when you feel yourself pushing against that boundary and actually stretching it it's 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 miraculous it's transcendent <laughs> it, it it's an experience and the wonderful part about writing is that you are left with this permanent record of it one thing that the experience of being a writer has taught me uh, about novels is that the novel isn't the book it's not the object that you're holding in your hands that's just the residue of of the activity uh the novel is a performance it's a it's an experience that happens in the moment it's alive uh, and, and the magic of them is that it's asynchronous, that the writer's experience of creating the novel in a way is recreated by the reader. The reader is, is given essentially a script, but it's not like a TV show or a movie uh, or music that the audience can consume passively. You're given essentially the sheet music. You're given the, the, the script and you're called upon to pull those words up off the page you bring your skill as a reader to the book and you perform the story for yourself in your head and that is the, that interaction between the prose and the reader's own active involvement in recreating the story for herself reimagines uh, the writer's initial experience of writing it uh, and it's it's just a powerful We've all, as readers, had those magical experiences where the book seems to come alive uh, in our heads. And we've also had those flat, dead experiences of books that have never quite come to life for us. Uh, and, and when it works, when it really kicks in, it's just a transformative experience. It's such a wonderful, powerful medium. I'm, I'm so devoted to books and so not worried about books ever going away. Everybody worries about the switch to digital, and, and I feel like that's only the a different platform for the same art form. I feel that uh, we will always enjoy stories, and that magic of of being handed uh, a book and, and performing it for ourselves and bringing it to life in the intimacy of our own thoughts uh, is one of a kind. Hmm. Wow. That was more of an answer than you were expecting.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, it was very um, philosophical and... uh, I know, I do go on. Inspiring. (laughs) I could listen all day. I I, uh, kind of fell into a trance-like state. It was fantastic. Thank you. Um, well, we appreciate your wisdom, your words, of course. Um, you can come back anytime. We'd love to uh, chat some more. Before we wrap up, just with your kind of final uh, pearl of wisdom to your fellow scribes, I'd love to ask you a, a fun one. If you could have dinner with any author from any era oh goodness, uh, to, your, to your favorite uh, place in the world, drinks, dinner, what have you, on the house, of course, uh,
1: who would you take and where would you take them? Oh my goodness. That's a great question. So many come to mind. I can bring more than one. But I think it would have to be F. Scott Fitzgerald just because he'd be such a good time (laughs) in his prime. And I, I feel like I would want to quiz him about his life. I feel like there's something about the, he has this romantic temperament that he was able to capture and I would love to meet the real person behind those books. I, I would want to meet him in his jazz age happy state. I wouldn't want to meet the <laughs> broke down Hollywood version of uh of of late in life uh Scott Fitzgerald. But I think no. Fitzgerald in his prime. I don't know if I could survive twenty-four hours with him, but I'd like to try.
0: all right uh so you're so so basically you're you're daring yourself to to go drinking with with exactly okay that sounds like quite a quite a dare yes uh that sounds like a blast i'm sure whatever you drink uh or eat or talk about would probably wouldn't it be
1: great we'd go to the plaza hotel in new york in the 20s and we'd have a cocktail
0: there you go there you go probably probably many cocktails
1: So, uh, yeah,
0: just, uh, you know, just your, your final thoughts for, uh, uh, fellow authors and just how to keep going, be it through the good times or the, uh, the not so good.
1: Yeah, I would, I would just pick up the phrase you just used, just keep going. Uh, and don't imagine that writing ever becomes easy for other people. I, you know, I just went through a 10-year struggle to come up with this book. And I think that when, if another writer is listening to this, it would be easy to imagine, oh, that guy's made it. uh, and, And it's all easier for him. I don't find that that's ever true. I don't find that writing ever gets easier. I don't find that one book makes you smarter or more expert or more, uh ready to take on the next it's a struggle every time and if if i'm doing this for another 50 years i'm sure it won't be any easier uh and so understand that the struggle is inherent in work that is this difficult and just keep going just never quit
0: well put the struggle is real <laughs> bill we can't we can't thank you enough for your for your time, and um, do wish you the best of luck with the latest, and and um, I'm sure it's going to have a, a fantastic reception, and and uh, that you'll have a blast out there meeting meeting your uh your audience and and your readers.
1: Yeah, well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks so much for joining us for this file, and if you're a fan of the show, simply head over to writer.com files.fm
1: for more. That's writerfiles.fm.